But when your children are signaling to you that they're not happy, you have a choice to make. You can take steps to damage the relationship mm. or you can take steps to strengthen the relationship. Hi, and welcome to With Link, a podcast where we talk with parents, professionals, and others about what it means to be a teen and what it means to raise a teen in 2022. In today's podcast, I spoke with Dr. Michael Narvi, the section head of neonatology and the medical director of the Child Health Transport Team at the Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Dr. Narvi has had an extensive career in neonatology, and in 2019, he became the chair of the Canadian Pediatric Society's Fetus and Newborn Committee. Now, Dr. Narvi also uses TikTok to share useful and sometimes comedic videos and helpful information related to his work. In our podcast, we cover a wide range of topics from Dr. Narvi's own struggles growing up to his story of getting into neonatology, all the way up to his experience and thoughts raising teens and how to communicate best with your team. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Narvi, thank you so much for being here today with us. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I found you first on, on TikTok and, and um, I would love to know a little bit more about kind of how you ended up using TikTok as an avenue to get um, some of your ideas and, and thoughts out there. Sure. Uh, I could talk about this for a very long time, but I'll try to give you the abridged version. You know, my experience actually, believe it or not, it starts off back in, I'm going to give you the highlights, it starts in 2015, in February of 2015. And you're going to say, wait a second, was TikTok even around back then? <laughs> well, no, uh, or at least the current version wasn't there. But my son was very much into something called Minecraft. Okay. Well, I'm sure you've heard of Minecraft, yeah, yeah. right? Um, so he was super into Minecraft. And one day he says to me, Dad, let's do, let's, let's write a blog about Minecraft. I knew nothing about blogging. Um, but I thought, you know what, he's five years old. It's a it's a project we can do together. And so we learned about how to blog. We learned about sites and whatnot. We created this Minecraft site. You won't find it because <laughs> um, nothing happened with it. But um, from there, because I work in newborn intensive care, um, one morning I was up like super early. We had a puppy. I was up every morning. And I thought, you know what? I should maybe put my thoughts down and create my own blog for newborn intensive mm. care. So I created a blog called All Things Neonatal, which still still functions. But so how does this tie into TikTok? So what, what happens is I quickly realized that when you write a blog, you need, a, you need some sort of vehicle to promote it. Right. And so from there, I set up a Facebook account and I set up a, a Twitter account and I started pushing the content out to Facebook and Twitter. So, excuse me. So we go ahead, you know, jump ahead several years, get to about 2020. Um, in 2020, uh, all my kids... Uh, and there's four, well, there's four of them, although one of them is only five. So at the time she wasn't, <laughs> she wasn't aware of this, but all my kids were pushing and pushing and saying, dad, you got to get on TikTok. That's where <laughs> things are at. Like Facebook, Twitter, it's not really, uh, where, where things are at yeah. anymore. That was 2020. And so they showed me TikTok. They showed me what they were looking at. And I saw lots of dancing and I saw lip syncing and all that stuff. And I thought, I just can't see how this is even possible, mm. how there's a link. So. Over the next year, they continue to push. And then in, I think it was June of 2021, um, it was during the pandemic, uh, where I live, I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba in Canada. It's like we were under lockdown. I had nothing to do. And finally, after they kept pushing, I said, fine, fine, I'll try this TikTok. <laughs> and the interesting thing was I had trouble finding a lot of medical content creators. There are some. Mm. But I had trouble finding people that were going to do what I wanted to do, gotcha. which was really just push out education. Um, and so I just, I tried it. You know, I, I made some videos, no dancing, but <laughs> I made some videos. And you know what? Um, it, it sort of took off. I mean, by no means do I have the types of viewership that, you know, some people do in the millions. Sure. You know, but I'm getting close to 500,000 followers. And, you know, it's, it's. It's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, and so I want to thank my children for <laughs> getting me to where I am. Of course. What, was the, uh, what were the initial videos that you put out, and, and what was the response like for those? Um, well, the initial videos were very um, – uh, yeah, this is actually kind of cool, is the difference between different platforms. 
my Facebook and Twitter were like hardcore, like intellectual discussion of research articles, mm. uh, very academic. Right. Um, I very quickly discovered, I tried a few of those on TikTok. There really wasn't the appetite for it. Um, now I still had, you know, a thousand views or 500 views, which wasn't terrible. But of course I was seeing people with thousands upon thousands, millions of views. And I thought, you know what, um, I, I, this must be a different, a different thing. <laughs> so I started to play around with it and I started to focus, you know, my lane, if you will, became talking about, uh, f the fetus, babies, pregnancy stuff, some newborn stuff. And I think where things really took off um, was when I, I posted a couple videos that really sort of took off. One of them was a very interesting video showing birth through an MRI, mm. uh, which was really cool to see how the baby moves inside. And so that one had a few hundred thousand views. But then um, I guess I'll, I'll say the one that really took off, I think it had 15 million views, which was kind of neat was um, a video of a 27-week fetus and they were swallowing amniotic fluid. And I pointed out to people that amniotic fluid is actually urine. It's 99% <laughs> of it is just fetal urine. And TikTok went nuts over this and said like, oh my God, I was drinking urine in the womb. And so 15 million viewers later, lots of followers came out of that. But then I think, and then from there, the one that, um, the one that actually I remember putting together and not thinking much of at the time, I thought it was cool, but it exploded was, um, there was a video of me talking about a pregnancy that occurred in a woman's liver. Wow. Um, and if you Google, so if you Google Narvi and you Google, it's called hepatic pregnancy. I think there were over a hundred news agencies, you know, including like, uh, USA Today, New York Times, New York Post, uh, Mirror UK, like, this, it went viral, you know, and it, and it got picked up with interviews, you know, about this case. And uh, anyway, so that's that was sort of where things you might say, you know, um, TikTok has been likened to like the addiction of it has mm. been likened to uh, gambling mm. because you roll the dice, you put out a post and you never know. You never know. It may go. You may hit the jackpot and you may get lots of views. You may get lots of likes uh, for self-gratification. Um, but you may also put out stuff as I'm sure you've seen or heard of where you put out something that you think is going to be fantastic sure, yeah, and it just doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Um, but, but then once you've had that one that goes over a million, you keep putting things out thinking, wow, is this one going to happen? <laughs> so yeah, it is a bit of a, it's, it's a bit of that like slot machine type yeah. of mentality. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I think a lot of, especially a lot of content creators that I know who are younger very much feel that. And I think it is um, an interesting side effect of, of these platforms and the ability that you can go so viral. You can share with the world that uh, fetuses do drink what potentially is urine. Like, um, I, I yeah. find that super, super awesome. Tell me about how you got yeah. into um, kind of the field of, of childcare and why you wanted to be a doctor anyway in the, in the first place. Um, you know what? I think from a very early age, I knew that I you know, wanted to do something in healthcare. Um, I thought about being a doctor. Uh, I have to say, I, did, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a neighborhood with a group of friends where I really didn't know much, mm. you know, about the outside world other than, you know, around in my family, there were lawyers, there were doctors, there were accountants, there were pharmacists. Um, and to the point where I was so naive that uh, I just told the story the other day that when I went my first year of university, there were all these engineers everywhere and they were dressed in these crazy outfits because it was the tradition of the school i went to at okay. queen's university in kingston um, and i remember turning to somebody and i'll never forget i said this i said I, I don't get it like how many trains could there possibly be in canada you know that they need all these engineers and the person then looks at me and they says that's a joke right and i said what do you mean it's a joke and he says they're engineers they build things they make things <laughs> so that's what an engineer is and he said, they said, who do you think made all this stuff? And I said, scientists, like I was, <laughs> I was so naive. Uh, so, I mean, I, so medicine sort of, it's not just that I didn't really know of anything else, but I, I had a passion for, I think, helping people. Um, and then I think probably one of the biggest uh, motivators for me was I have uh, siblings, uh, uh, 
two of them are twins who were born premature mm. um, at 34 weeks. And, um, you know, my brother was, you know, possibly not going to survive. You know, this is back in 1974. He had a condition called highline membrane disease. And back then, you know, the outcome was, you know, up to 50% of babies who were as sick as he was would not survive till morning. Wow. Now it's 99% plus would survive. Um, but knowing that there was that, I was interested in, in, in pediatrics in my history. And then my parents had a child 13 years after me, uh, my sister, uh, and they were both working. So, you know, and I changed diapers and made her dinner and, you know, sort of helped raise her. Yeah. And so I think that combination, you know, and I liked science. So the, the science, the background of my siblings, and then my other sibling sort of guided me towards uh, pediatrics. I have to say in medical school, I wanted nothing to do other than uh, do obstetrics. I wanted to deliver babies. That was my goal. In okay. life. Um, and then uh, in my fourth year of my fourth year of medicine or end of my third year, I suddenly uh, realized in an aha moment, I was in Toronto, Canada, or I should say Toronto. Nobody says the T, <laughs> uh, but I was in Toronto and I was there doing an, an elective to work with high risk pregnancies. And I had an aha moment there where suddenly one day I looked at what I was doing and I was caring for this mother and don't get me wrong. It was a, a wonderful experience, but I realized I was more interested in the fetus. Mm. I was more interested in the outcome of that baby. Right. And so that's when I realized putting all the pieces together that I probably was more interested in taking care of babies than I was in taking care of the mother. And so that's how I transitioned towards uh, pediatrics. So that's how I wound up. And then I did pediatrics and realized my second rotation was newborn intensive care or NICU as you call it um, for short. And I did NICU and was hooked. Yeah, immediately hooked. You know, the idea of, you know, being able to, uh, you know, diagnose and treat these sick newborns and have them go home with their families the majority of the time and have good outcomes the majority of the time um, was just so rewarding. Mm. Yeah, it was really rewarding. But, you know, um, I enjoyed pediatrics uh, and, you know, care of children, care of adolescents, all the same. Yeah. So what I understand about the NICU is that it's a very high intensity environment. There's a lot of pressure you're dealing with very, probably very, you know, uh, sensitive cases of, of newborns. What about that was intriguing to you when you first got there? And, and what about it was the most rewarding? Um, I, I think a, a couple things. One, it is remarkable how sick a baby can get mm. and pull through. You know, I often say when people say, oh, you work in the NICU, these babies are so fragile. I say to them, you know what? If you had the same degree of illness that this little baby had <laughs> with the abuse that your body has been through, whether it's, you know, not, not that I'm saying people use alcohol and drugs, but I mean, those who have used alcohol in their lifetime, drugs in their lifetime, smoking or other illicit substances, haven't taken care of themselves well. <laughs> They get hit with the same degree of illness and they may not walk out of there, you know, whereas the baby has a remarkable capacity to heal and, and, and also the brain. I mean, this, this is, we could talk for hours, but the brain of a newborn can be injured. And then the brain is what we, we, we say it has plasticity. Mm. So the brain is capable of rewiring around areas of damage where the, as the adult, we don't have that same, right. you know, capability. So I, I'm, I'm constantly in awe of what these babies can experience and pull through. And then, um, and I know this may sound sappy, but it's true. The, the privilege that I have to help a family, and this is, this is not just me, this is a team effort. I mean, we work in a multidisciplinary team with nurses and doctors and pharmacists and nutritionists and social workers and occupational therapists and respiratory therapists, this whole team, the way we get to experience truly helping families in an extremely awful situation get through to the other side and, you know, hear them say at the end, not that I need the gratitude, but when I do hear someone say, doctor, you know, I never thought this was going to end, but, 
you know, thank you and the team so much for helping me get through this. You know, that that's the reward that I think we all we all want. I mean, everybody likes the I mean, I'd be lying if I said, you know, I don't like when, you know, something really strange comes in and I make a diagnosis, right. <laughs> you know, and and, you know, I, and I'm the one who comes up with the diagnosis. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's our ego. We all like that. Um, but in, as far as the reward, uh, yeah, helping the families get through it and then, um, you know, running into them. And actually, you know, my neighbor happens to be uh, a parent of a child that I uh, took care of. And so cool. You know, I remember being so now being able to see that child, you know, and they're growing and see how they're doing. You know, it, it's that's the reward. Man, I, I can only imagine because probably those families that come to you, that's an, that's a, a unique experience that they're going to have. You know, they've probably never had or they've probably never had a kid in the NICU. They probably don't know what is going on and having you there to with the expertise to guide them through. I can only imagine is just like, oh, so, so helpful for them. And actually then delivering on the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You just reminded me. I actually wrote it or not wrote. I um, published a TikTok on a little bit on this this topic and in which I, you know, I said to I, I sort of made an announcement. I said, parents, it's OK to cry. Mm. And and the idea behind that post. And then I, I think I elaborated a little bit as to why is that you hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, we've just met, of course, but, you know, let's say you and I are, are friends and, and I know that you are you know, have a kidney disease and you need a surgery for this kidney disease. Well, you are, you know, you're conscious, you're, you know, that the surgery is coming, you have time to prepare. Right. And so not that it's easy to go through surgery, but these families, when they're in tears, it's because they got pregnant. They've been talking to their partner for months yeah. about designing the baby room, which stroller they should get. And believe me, that's stressful. It's not easy. <laughs> I don't know if, you, if you've had to pick out strollers, but there's so many options. But they stress over all these details. And then the dream that they have, that baby is ripped away from them mm. because their membranes have, or the waters break, they go into labor, or they go and they find out there's something wrong with the baby. Their dream has been shattered. Mm. And so people need time to go through those stages of grief and grieving. Um, and so when I see families crying, I, one of the things I always say to them is like, this wasn't what you planned. This isn't what you were hoping for. Nobody, nobody gets pregnant and says, Oh, I can't wait to have a baby in the NICU. <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> and, and on that note, I, I should tell you, um, I think a lot of people don't, well, now, now people I think are getting that I know pretty much everyone I know knows what I do. But um, sometimes I'll hear people say, oh, do you work at uh, this hospital? I'll say, yes, I do. They'll say, oh, I hope I get to see you. And I say, no, really, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> because I only get called when there's something really wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you want to see me in the cafeteria, show me pictures of your baby. Great. <laughs> but you don't want to see me at your delivery. Yeah. That's super true. I'd love to kind of hear more about, you know, you growing up and, and this inspiration to become a doctor, to, to give back to other people in, in your profession. I know a lot of people that we talk to um, have had, you know, personal experience either with struggling with their physical health or mental health. And I'm curious to know if there was anything that you struggled with or that inspired you um, while you were growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like many like many children, especially when you go through, I mean, first of all, from, from a health standpoint, I was very fortunate in that, you know, I, I, aside from allergies, you know, I, I really didn't have any significant medical problems. Um, I did, I did take part in a, I don't even know if you'd know the drug anymore called clertripolon. <laughs> I was in a study in 1977. I think I was patient number seven cool. <laughs> in a study on the use of clertripolon in kids. So, you know, I, I had that experience, but I think that, um, you know, like many kids, like, you know, I, I, I certainly do not want to portray that I had a bad childhood. I had a good childhood. But one of the things that I really struggled with when I was growing up was obesity. Um, you know, that was a that was a problem. Um, now, you, you might you might say, as many do when they look at me now with my relatively skinny arms and I don't look like I'm 
you know, heavy, um, and, and I'm not, um, but, you know, when I was, uh, I think I reached my peak at, in grade nine, um, and I think I was about 215 or 220 pounds in grade nine and six feet tall. Um, and now you might, you might say at this point, well, what's like, what's the big deal? Like what, you know, I mean, obesity, of course, for, for health reasons, you don't want to be obese, but there's a lot of like for teens, um, and I'm sure I'm, I mean, your listeners would be aware of this, but from my own experience, you know, it's difficult when, you know, you put on all this weight and you're at that age. And I know, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you can't help but compare yourself to others. And when, you know, I, I hung out with a lot of guys who were on the track team and they were very fit and, you know, I mean, I was interested in girls and girls didn't want to pay any attention to me because I was a heavier kid. And, and, you know, I finally did something about it. And what I did, I did the wrong thing. Um, and this is a, I'm going to give this is a little bit of medical education for your listeners out there in case there's any teens listening. But what I did was my mother uh, had decided to go on Weight Watchers. And um, rather than, you know, I reached the point where, I, I mean, I was wearing a size, I think, 42 jean, you know, like, and, you know, now I'm in like a 34. Like, so it was it was quite a quite a difference. Um, and I decided, you know what, I'd like to join. I want to actually do something about it because I didn't like that. I was like I had kids. Kids were mean. Sure, you know? Like I course. had some nicknames. Of course. I had some nicknames that people would call me that we were alluding to the fact that I was chubby. Um, and so I decided it was time to do something about it. So instead of going on Weight Watchers uh, with my own plan, my mother just said to me, and this isn't a criticism of my mother. She believed she was doing the right thing. But she said, well, why don't you just follow my program? Now, to your listeners out there, a 40-something woman, perimenopausal, her caloric needs are a lot less than a growing adolescent. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about nutrition. I didn't, and I was, and I wasn't in a program, right? I was just doing this on the side. I took my mother's sheet and I said, oh, okay, this is how many calories I can have. So anyway, I was, I wound up being in a tremendous caloric deficit. Mm. And what was the impact of that? Well, I went from 215, 220 to a low of 149 pounds. Wow. Um, you know, so I lost, and I don't, you might ask me how long that was over. It wasn't over a long time. I remember that, like it was months. It wasn't a couple of years over the course of months. I just started shedding weight and, you know, I went down to a point where I, I, I got to the point where for the first time in life that I could remember, my family was saying to me, like, you need to eat, you need to put wow. on weight. So it was really extreme. It was, this was not. not yeah. Good. Yeah, it was. It was. And so I've experienced, you know, in my life, the yo-yo. Mm. Um, and I continue to be sensitive. Like I, I have a sense of caloric intake to this day. Um, in my, uh, in grade 11. So I, over the, over time, I started to put some weight back on. But then in the summer of grade 11 through grade 12, I worked, or sorry, it was, yeah, grade 11, grade 12, I worked at a Dairy Queen. And it was hot in there like you wouldn't believe. And so I would eat ice cream like it was one out of style just to cool myself <laughs> off. And so I wound up going right back up to about 210. Oh, man. Um, and then when I went to, so just to show you these effects, like the psychological effect of counting your calories, being mindful of your body. Um, when I went to Queens University, um, I probably experienced, well, I experienced a rebound in my, obsessive compulsiveness around calories because what wound up happening was and i don't know if they still do this in university but for every meal that the cafeteria had they would have protein fat and calorie content next to the each serving mm. and so i didn't tell anyone i was doing this but you better believe every single day once i got there i started adding up every meal and i think i set myself a limit of about 16 or 1700 calories a day or something like that and and again, I, I dropped probably 40 to 50 pounds, you know, in this, and it was fast, you know, really, really fast. And so 
you know, even today, I would say that when somebody offers me dessert, my wife would guarantee you I do this. When somebody offers me dessert, I still hesitate, mm. you know, because if I think I don't count the calories now, but if I think about what I've eaten, I'll think, no, I shouldn't have this because I don't want my jeans to be tighter tomorrow. Right. I don't want to feel like I don't, my shirt doesn't fit quite right. And I, and I have to admit, I think it's a little, it's probably a little more than I need to, to, to obsess about it. Um, and it's interesting. I think if I had grown up in a different time, there might've been intervention. You know, I think that um, back in the eighties, which is when this happened, there was no, there was no one to meet and talk about the psychology of diet, the psychology right. of physical appearance, body dysmorphic disorder. I mean, of course, if it became a disorder, you could see a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist. But my suspicion is now, um, my suspicion is now that there are, I'm sure there are children struggling with this. Well, I know there are, who don't like the way they look, who feel like they've either got to exercise like crazy, or they've got to throw up if they're bulimic, you know, or restrict severely anorexia. Um, and my advice would be, you know, you don't have to do this alone. There's so many people now to support, you know, people. And, and if I could go back, I, I think that, you know, if I, if, if, if this had happened now, I bet you my parents would have seen that there was something going on inside my head, right? you know, and they would have um, adjusted and maybe sought out just not some, not a psychiatrist, but just somebody, a mentor, a coach, uh, you know, a someone just to, just to talk to me about the experience and talk to me about the pitfalls. And so I would say, do it. You know, it's like with, with any diet, they say everything, food in moderation is good. Right. And I would say that's probably true, you know, of just about anything, right. everything in moderation is okay, but extremism uh, can lead to some, some issues. Yeah. One, thank you for sharing and, and hearing your story. I mean, it definitely resonates with me, you know, that I shared a very similar struggle with you being a heavier kid growing up and developing eating disorders and, and body dysmorphia. And, and I do think that today it is much more prevalent and talked about, about these things and how much they affect kids. You know, you can look at the, the Facebook leak and how, how they're even tracking these sorts of things in, in young people. So I think the, the cultural presence of, um, you know, this specific sort of um, food related and eating and body issues is, is much more. I do personally worry um, about the effect of things like TikTok, of Instagram on this kind of uh, self-image piece that we have as a culture. Um, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on do you think that, um, you know, as, as a user of TikTok, as a creator, um, are you concerned at all about kind of uh, its effect on people's mental wellness, people's uh, self-identities, any, any of the sort? 100%. You know, I think that um, I'm not giving anything away and I don't think this is, I don't think this is inappropriate to say, but um, I, I'm pretty confident that TikTok looks at, you know, my gender looks at my age and I know your listeners might say, you know, I don't believe him. He's probably lying about <laughs> this, but you know, every now and then I have to reset my TikTok, and I, you know, I, I don't know if everybody's aware on that on TikTok, you can click, I'm trying to remember where it is now, but you can click on pretty much any video. I think there's three dots and you can say, I'm not interested in this content, mm. but invariably what gets pushed to me, are young girls in bikinis or t-shirts exposing various body parts, or at least the outlines of them. Um, and, you know, to me, it's, it's troubling for a couple of reasons. I mean, personally, I don't want to be, you know, walking down the street and open up my TikTok and have some semi naked woman who's young on my TikTok right. and run into a, patient's mother or, right. you know, and, and who sees what I'm looking at, right? Like that to me is not appropriate. Um, but secondly, you know, I, I just, I don't need to see that, you know, like I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to see it. And I, and I worry, you know, so what'll happen is I'll keep saying, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. I'll, I'll uninstall TikTok. I'll reinstall. So it starts everything fresh, but invariably all that stuff comes right. back. And I have thought, you know, because I have daughters, um, and I thought, you know, what is it like 
you know, when, excuse me, you see, like if they're on their TikTok, I haven't, well, one of them's not on TikTok, she's five, but the one who is, is, is a teen, um, what does she think when she sees this? Mm. You know, is this, is this, I'll call it the, the, the 1% or less, because it is, I mean, you know, I mean, hats off to some of these people, whether it's men or women who have incredible physiques and they're showing them off on TikTok. You know, like that, like based on our conversation, that is not easy to maintain. Right. I mean, some of that is genetics. Some of it, no doubt, is surgical enhancement. Of course. Or, or injections. And, and a lot of it is the angle. And I, and I get that, photo, photo, like the angle of the photographs being taken or the videos being taken. But... I worry that in, when girls, especially impressionable young girls and boys for that matter, of g any gender identity or, or, or sexual preference, when they see these images, I worry that they think that this is, this is normal. This is what should be. Right. And, and in a similar vein, you know, for those couples that struggle with infertility, you know, one of, and which I'm shifting gears entirely, sure. but, but you'll, you'll see the parallel, you know, I remember, you know, hearing from somebody years ago who said, you know, it's so upsetting. Everybody you know, gets pregnant so easy. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, all my friends, they say, oh, we weren't even trying. Oh, we had sex one time, you know, I got pregnant and, and, you know, I've been struggling for two years to get pregnant. And what I said to the, what I said to the person is I said, it's, it's your data feed. That's the problem. Right. It's that anyone who's struggling doesn't say, oh my God, I've been struggling for two <laughs> years to get pregnant. Isn't that awesome? Right. Like nobody says that, right? Um, but the people who weren't trying to get pregnant because it's not a stressor. It's something they can say, it's like a, it's like to them, it's almost like a joke. Like, oh, I wasn't even trying. Or my husband needs to stay away from me because he even looks at me and I get pregnant. Like these are the things that get out there and then people believe that this is normal, right? Right. But yet that we know there's a lot of people struggling with infertility. Same thing with body image. Um, you know, and, and I, and I have to say, of course, my specialty is newborn intensive care. It's not adolescence, but I'll, I'll profess that I have some uh, degree of expertise based on having three adolescents in the house and, um, having done some adolescent care as a, as a pediatric resident that, uh, of course, that age, you're very impressionable. Um, you don't have at that age, th there's a couple of problems that you have. The, one of the problems is you don't have that ability at that age to really recognize what is normal mm. and what is being projected to you as normal on TikTok. When you say right? normal, what, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is... <clears throat> If you were to, we talked about the data feed, right? Right. If you were to go and look at everyone in your class objectively, right? And you were to say, okay, what types of body types do we have? You would see there's a whole spectrum, right? But when you're looking on TikTok and you're seeing the guys with the chiseled abs and you're seeing the girls with very enhanced proportions, right? In tiny little bathing suits with pristine skin, which of course has likely been Photoshopped or, 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 or what have you, or there's a filter. That is what you, that's, that's what you see. That's what you believe is, is possible. And I've, and I've got news for you. Like for some people, it's just not possible. Like I, I could, I could work my bot genetically. This is actually funny, you know, and this is a good, this is medical and it's, 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 it's uh, relatable. You know, I took 23 and me. Um, or there's Ancestry, there's other platforms. And my wife took it. My wife is, you know, has been an athlete her whole life. And interestingly, it actually said in 23andMe, genetically, you have the body type that would, would um, be good essentially for athletics, hmm. okay? And, and, and strength, okay? For me, it, it essentially said, don't waste a time, a, a day lifting weights. You're never going to put anything on, <laughs> right? And, and to that end, in high school, I mean, I, 
I wouldn't look it. But when I was heavier, I threw the shot put, I threw discus because I was a big kid. I was tall. I was six foot four and heavy. Um, but I wasn't strong. And, and for years in high school, I would come early and I would work out with the guys. And, you know, I'd spend an hour before class working, lifting heavy weights and whatnot. I got toned, but I never, I never got strong. They got huge. <laughs> yeah. But genetically, I'm not predisposed to it. So I think that's what I'm getting at with saying for many people, you don't have the genetics that you're going to be, get to this point. Or if you don't have the genetics, you don't have the financial resources to pay. Do the surgery. To, to look do, like yeah, this. Yeah, do all this stuff. Yeah. So, but but unfortunately, the the team sees what they want to see. And sometimes they filter out what's around them, right? So I think that that's one of the things that, I think that's one of the things that we sometimes need to support our, our teens with is, you know, changing the data stream and saying, like one thing, one thing I've learned, sorry, this is going different directions, but one thing I've learned is you can't argue with a teen. Like, you know, you're wrong, okay? And so if you're on different sides of the page, you know, if you say, well, you know what, I'm sorry, you know, you're wrong. You know, what they think is, oh, you're just old. You don't know what you're talking about. But one tip I will give you, and I've learned this and it works really well, is you don't need to tell the team they're wrong. But what you what 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 de-escalates things and allows you to have a conversation with your team is when you say the following, this was this, I was given this advice and my God, it has worked well, um, is instead of saying, trying to debate your teen, especially when they're really smart and many of them are really, really smart these days and they're taught debating and whatnot, instead of debating them, what, what you say, what I wind up saying sometimes is, you know what, I, I don't share that opinion, but I get that that's how you feel. And I get that's how right now you need to feel this way. And I said, I'm going to have to find a way to live with that. Yeah. Right. And it's so interesting. It doesn't matter how hot things are getting. When you give them their permission to feel the, what they're feeling, right, and they no longer see you as oppositional, it just de-escalates everything. And then... What invariably happens, because it's happened to me almost every time, then you can have the conversation. Right. It's because they walls. no longer see you as opposition. Yeah. And then they'll then they may come back to you and they may say, you know, you know, Dad, I was thinking about what you said earlier, and you know, maybe we could try this. You know, but once you're once you're into that, you know, I know more than you, it just things ratchet up and you get nowhere. So you know, in the case of talking about body image, how they appear to other people, that 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 is that is how I might approach that is to say, you know, I get that you're not feeling as pretty or you're not feeling as attractive or you're not, you know, doing this or that. You know, I think you're an amazing person. I think you bring so much to the table. But I understand that that's how you feel. Yeah. And so how are we how, how are we going to deal with that? And eventually what you hope is that they come back and they start saying, you know what, you know, I, I looked around and yeah, not, not everyone in the class has a boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, not everyone is, you know, six feet tall and, you know, can run three miles without breaking a sweat, right. you know? And so you need to let them come to their own conclusions. I think. I think it's so true. And the simple act of just validating how they feel, I think is so is such an easy tactic to break down the, that barrier, that walls that you have. Cause sometimes it feels like, and I know this, you know, in my own life and even in the, the current relationships in my life, if you come in combative, both people, you've, you've eliminated conversation. You're now just in an argument. And when you can take a step back and it, and it actually take the time to appreciate what the other person is feeling. Like you said, you, you I, I understand how you feel. That's more important than probably whatever it is that they're trying to argue about. Um, so I, I absolutely love, 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 love that tactic. Yeah. And you know, and we use that in, I use that in medicine as well, because one of the things that we teach all of our trainees is when you're dealing with difficult conversations in the NICU, um, resist the temptation to do it all in one conversation. Mm. 
And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm scheming when I talk to my kids or I'm scheming when I talk to anyone in the intensive care unit, but I recognize that um, we all have a lens through which we see things. And that lens is determined in part by past experience. So if nothing has gone right in your life, at least that's how you perceive. And everyone who you've trusted has let you down, right? Then for me to walk into a room and say, okay, here's what's going on with your baby. We're doing this, 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 and this. Sound good? And have you trust that I know what's going on? It, that's, that's silly, right? But if you do it over three or four meetings, you build the trust. And I think that that's, you know, that, that's the approach, you know, that I would suggest we do with our teens, you know, and children is that, you know, I mean, as you know, in spite of what you just said, I know that, I mean, we've all gone into conversations where we think the person is like on another planet. We can't, we can't see how they can possibly come to this conclusion. Right. But I think when that happens, I think that's where we need to be inquisitive. Mm. That's where we need to say, what am I missing? Right. This doesn't make sense. Like this conclusion does not make sense. So what's operating here? Because mm. if I assume, which is, I think, a generally a fair assumption that the people you're talking to are bright, you know, they're informed. There's clearly something operating in the background, which is leading them to get to a different conclusion. Is it a past experience? Is it a fear? We either a rational or irrational fear. Um, is it possibly something psychological? Is it something psychiatric? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? You know, what is operating here that is leading them to a different conclusion? And then the final thing you have to ask is, am I wrong? Mm. <laughs> like, am I not seeing things clearly, yeah. right? And what is it that I'm missing? Um, and that's easier said than done. Of course. I take such a, such a humble perspective to be able to self-reflect in that moment of butting heads with your teen, with your patient of what am I not seeing here? What, what could I potentially not be seeing? Um, how, how has that gone with your teens? Do you, have you found that to be effective? Have you found? Yeah. You know what? Um, when, so my, my teens know that I do this, they know the game. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know what? Like when I started, so I think like many parents, I mean, children, unfortunately don't come with a user manual. Um, and so like many parents, you know, when you get to um, the teen years, um, the teen years become very self-centered, you know, and they become, you know, um, you know, everything is about the teen, right? And w I would let that frustrate me, you know, and I would, you know, we would get into arguments, you know, like the classic one is, um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, you, you feel like it, you need to go and do something. You need to go, today's the day when we need to go and shop for new clothes, or today's the day when we need to go and visit your grandparents or, or what have you, right? And so you can lock horns when the teen says, well, I just, like today I'm playing video games with my buddies. I don't want <laughs> to go, right. right? And so what I would do in the past is I would basically lay out a logical argument. Well, you know, your grandparents are available today. They're not available tomorrow. Uh, you know, they've got appointments tomorrow. Today is the weekend. This is the one day we have. There's a window, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't work, right? right? Because the only thing that they're thinking of is my friends, who are now more important right now to me than you, <laughs> right? Um, we've got plans, right? And so I think it's about respect. It's about coming up with some degree of respect and saying, you know, like I said, well, okay, well, I, I don't feel that this is the right decision, but, you know, you're clearly too big for me to throw over my shoulder and take, you know, to your grandparents. So that's where you then have to enter into dialogue. Mm. And that's where you have to figure out, let's work together for a solution. You don't want to go now. I can't go tomorrow. You know, they're expecting to see us. So that's when you get into the negotiation of how long do you need to play with your friends for, you know, and, 
and I think you don't want to treat your kids. Now, this is purely parenting. This has nothing to do with my pediatrics, <laughs> okay. but I think you don't want to treat your kids as if they're adults mm. and on the same level as you, but you do want to treat your children with respect. If you, if you want respect, I think you have to respect them. And while you may not always agree with them and you may not, you know, think that, um, you know, that they're, they've analyzed the situation appropriately. I think once you show them respect and you show them an inquisitive nature, tell me more, you know, like that, that's, that is so disarming. You know, when, when somebody, you know, when your child says, well, you don't understand, right. You know, I don't want to, I'm not the perfect parent by a long shot, but when my, when my kids say to me, you know, dad, you know, you don't get it. Well, the next question out of your mouth or next thing out of your mouth can't be, you know what? You're a child. I get it. Right. Cause immediately the barriers go up. It needs to be, well, tell me like, what don't I get? You know, I'd like to know, you know, I'd like to learn because if I'm not getting something, I'll say to them, I don't, I really, I'll say to them jokingly, this may shock you, but I don't enjoy spending our time arguing. <laughs> so tell me what it is I don't get. And then I'm really listening. And the final thing, the final thing I'll tell you on that is um, there's, you've probably read this book and it's not, a, I have no, I have no uh, shares in this company that produces the book, but there's a book called Crucial Conversations. Have you read that book? I haven't. No, I'll have to put that on my list. Okay. Fantastic book. Um, and it's a, there's, there's a lot in it, but it, the, the concept of it, and you can use this, um, use this in your marriage, use this at work, use this anywhere. And what I remember, and I'll try to try to remember exactly, so it's not too embarrassing if I forget, but they, they talk there about using um, the acronym STATE, S-T-A-T-E. Okay. And what it means is um, to share your, so share, share the facts, okay? So start with, so when you approach a conversation, you, sh you share the facts, okay? Then you tell a story, okay? The story is about how you, how it looks or what you're perceiving, okay? The A is for asking questions, okay? And um, T is for talk tentatively and E is for encourage testing. So I'll give you an example. You and I are having a conversation and I present an idea to you and your response to me just by body language is you, you go like this and you roll your eyes. Okay. So now normally when that happens, you get emotional. Right. And the way you respond to it is you say, don't you roll your eyes at my idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's leading with an, you've already told your story that clearly you think this person has made you feel like you're an idiot. Okay. But if instead you carried on this conversation and I would use this with children to say, I'm going to use the S, share the facts. Um, I just presented to you my plan for the next quarter for our business. Okay. And I shared with you X, Y, and Z. Based, so the T, okay, telling the story. So that was a fact I led with. After I presented, it looked to me as if you rolled your eyes. When I saw that, it made me feel as if you thought this was a bad idea, okay? And then the, e, the A is ask. And so you ask the question, I would say to you, is that what happened? And then you talk tentatively and encourage testing, meaning I would say, is that what happened? Because I really want to know, because if, if, if I've missed the mark, it would be very helpful for me to present to you something in the future that would address any concerns you might have. Right. Right. Yeah. So by, by using the state acronym, you've turned what could have been a very defensive you know, why did you roll your eyes? <laughs> you know, and immediately the hair on your neck gets up. We're about to get in a fight over totally. this, right? To here's what I've observed, or here's what I said. Here's what I've observed. Am I off? 
And you might actually say, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to roll my eyes. Like, what if you didn't? What if, what if you just were looking up at the ceiling? Right. Right. And you say, you know, actually, sorry, I, I wasn't meaning to roll my eyes. I just was looking up at the ceiling. I heard a noise. I actually thought your presentation was very good. <laughs> right. Um, and the same can happen with the children. When they say, you know what, you present something, an idea to them, something you want to do as a family, and they blast you, right? And you just slow it down and just say, hey, I presented this idea for what we can do this afternoon. These are the facts of what I said. It seems to me, based on your reaction, that you're not very happy with that idea. I'd like to hear what it is about the idea. I really would like to know sincerely, like, please tell me as your father, like, what, what did I miss? Yeah. Cause I thought that this was a good idea. Yeah. It's, it's like, and I think that that's helpful. I think it's super helpful. And, and in a way it's the emotions that get in between the actual conversation. And it's that, that feeling of like, don't tell me what to do dad that, you know, makes for the actual communication and strategizing and, um, and coming up with a plan. So, so difficult. And I think the state, what you just described is, a way to take down that emotion and get everyone on the same page about how you're feeling. So that way there's no ambiguity and you can kind of move on to the next thing. And I think that's an awesome. Strategy. Yeah. And, and you know what, I'll just say the reverse is also true. Mm. So in my life, I mean, I'm not, I keep saying I'm not perfect and I'm not, I mean, I'm in sometimes in conversations where somebody says something and instantly I feel myself getting upset. Right. Right. And so I've, I've trained myself, certainly in the workplace, that when that happens, and you can do this at home with your children, with your spouse, with your partner, whomever, when you feel that well up inside you, you have to remember that facts are said, but then up in the corner here, there's a story, mm. okay? So somebody says something, and then based maybe on previous experience with the individual, based on how you're doing that day, whether you slept well, right? You apply a story and the story is, oh, this person has said this to me before. They think I'm a moron, right? That creates a feeling in you. And so sometimes when I feel that well up, I really consciously try to say, okay, what did they actually say? And then this is a real skill. And I would encourage any teen or child, if you can do this, this will help you throughout life is try to identify the story that you just told yourself. Mm. And then try to ask yourself, is there another story that could be operative? Like what if instead of ridiculing, the comment was actually meant to support? Mm. What if the comment was not meant to say this is a bad idea, but to say, hey, I think that this is a good start but let's, how can I help you turn this into a great idea? Right. So it's not that your idea is dumb, but how can we use this and as a springboard to do something different? Um, that takes a lot of skill and discipline, but I assure your listeners, if you can, if you can master that, if you can, if you can try, it's, it's the old expression, see it through somebody else's, you know, glasses. If you can, if you can try to see what the other possible story is, well, it does two things. Number one, your emotions just drop, right? Right, Because you stop getting defensive. And then again, and then the second thing is then it allows for further dialogue. What do you mean by that? I'd like to know, you know, <laughs> instead of, well, that was rude. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So anyway, that's, those, those are some, some tips I, that I've found in the workplace that are helpful. But that I, I, and I often teach my trainees, I, I teach them these same things and I'll say, you know what, it's not just for the work, you know, because I joke with them and I say, I'm sure none of you have ever had an argument with a partner <laughs> and everybody laughs. And I say, you know, this, this is something you can try. Yeah. This has been so, so awesome of a conversation. We, we asked the three same questions to every guest we have. So I'm going to, I'm going to spitfire them. At yep. you. Um, the first is what is one thing and as a parent, what is one thing that you think that other parents f up about being a parent? Um, well, I think, um, I, I think it's what I just talked about. You know, it's that, you know, the kids don't know what they're talking about. It's making that assumption that they're always wrong 
you know, and that parents are always right, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's important to listen to the kids, you know, doesn't mean that you're a soft parent that just does whatever your children want. Right. But when your children are signaling to you that they're not happy, you have a choice to make. You can take steps to damage the relationship mm. or you can take steps to strengthen the relationship. Just because you ask them, you know, for further clarification doesn't mean that you're going to agree with them. And I'll actually say that to the kids and I'll say, okay, we can talk about this. But I just said this to my son the other day, we can talk about this weekend and we can talk about how it's going to go. But because I'm asking you about it, don't assume that it's all going to go as you're wishing. Mm. We're discussing it. Right. And I think that's the, the mistake that parents make is when, when I, when a child comes and they say, this is what I want to do. And it's not in keeping with what you want to do. And you just, you, you, you lash out and you say, you know, especially if they brought it up before you say, I told you we're not doing that. <laughs> you know, a, a different approach would be to say, you know what, you brought this up a second time. And I think we discussed it already. And I said, we weren't going to do that, but you're bringing it up. What's going on, mm. you know? And that's where then they say to you, well, I, I really, really, really want to do this. And that's, and that, that, that's dialogue, right? So I think it's parent, the where parents mis make mistakes, it's where they lay the hammer down a little too quickly. Got now, sometimes you have to, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's the fifth time that they're bringing up the same thing, you got to say, I told you <laughs> end of discussion. We're not discussing this again. We'll do it another weekend, right. but not, not this weekend. Gotcha. Okay. What is one belief or idea that you wish more people, parents or not had in their life? Um, I think, I think one belief that I wish more parents had is, um, not to be in a, not to be in a rush. Um, there's this, I, I don't know about where you live. Um, but in places I've lived and people I've known, there's this huge rush to, um, for your, it's about your children this huge rush to get them to go to university, to get a job, to get out in the workforce, mm. to make something of themselves. And, you know, I've got a cousin who's a great example of why it's probably better not to do it that way, because, you know, he was, I remember he chose not to go to university and people were, people were like, Oh my God, how could he not go to university? So bright. But the honest truth was he didn't know what he wanted to do. Mm. And so he thought, well, I can spend thousands of dollars doing a general arts degree with no end in sight, right? Or I can get a job. I can work for a few years until I realize what it is I'm passionate about in life. Well, that individual now is an accountant working at a multi-million dollar company. And I think he may be a partner and he's, he's done phenomenally well. But it was because he wasn't pushed right. to do something when he hadn't yet figured out what he wanted to do. And so... Now, would, would I say that I would be overjoyed if my kids didn't want to go to university? Well, no, but if, if they said to me, we want to go to university once we know what it is we want to do, right? Even a, even a direction, right? I, I think that that's where you need to support them mm. and not be so paranoid, like, and also worry about what the neighbor thinks. Right. Because I think that's often what happens. You know, you've got your circle of friends and all their kids are going to university, right? And are you embarrassed? Your child's not going to go to university. No, support them and say, you know what? They're going to figure out what they want to do first. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a piece of advice. I love that. Yeah. It's like avoiding tying your sense of self identity to the outcome that your, your kid or the life that your, your child lives. Um, okay. Last question. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing about the world, what would you do? Wow. That's, that's a, that's a tough one. I would say I would <laughs> I'd get rid of COVID. <laughs> that, that's the easy one, but no, I, what, what I, what I know, what I would do if I could snap my fingers and do one thing um, is I would um, ensure that everyone globally has access to clean water. That is because so much, you know, we take for granted, um, here in North America, we've got water treatment plants, you know, 
there, there are literally people living all over the world who look at their water source and wonder, when am I going to get sick? Mm. You know, I think giving people access to fresh, clean water uh, is, is one thing I wish we could do. Awesome. Dr. Narby, thank you so much for the time today. It's been an awesome conversation. Absolutely. Anytime.